Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special grand final preview edition of the podcast. It should go that saying, coming to you in traditional grand final week, the last full week of September, as usual, not like last year in October. And joining me for this AFL grand final preview podcast, which I think is our third we've done, is our resident AFL expert, Cameron McDonald. How are you doing, Cameron? I'm good, punny yourself, mate. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, we've been having, I'd, I'd like to say, some unseasonably cold weather here in Ballarat, but uh, it's not, there's no unseasonably cold time in Ballarat. <laughs> but it's, we had snow forecast yesterday, but the Friday before the grand fire, before that last Saturday in September last year, we had a snowstorm. So, um, progress, interesting progress. Uh, That's on, right, yeah. And they've, on they've that. Um, um, graphic of what they're expecting for this Saturday in Melbourne versus Perth. So, um, you know, hats off to Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs who will be enjoying 25 degrees and, and you know, some lovely sunshine. Um, well, I think we both might have, you know, Pavlovian reactions to cold, wet grand final days, Cameron. Um, thinking back to 2000 case, 2002 in your case, not... Great days, I guess, for our football club, but uh, our respective football clubs, but um, both bitterly cold days. What we need more of is 1987 Grand Final Day when it was 31 degrees and it was so hot that Michael Tuck came out after halftime in a sleeveless jumper. Yeah, that's dramatic. That, that, that is an actual thing that happened. Um, well, what about the um, what about the that was oh, controversy, was, wasn't it? The um, uh, Grand Final one, yeah. I thought that was the IV. I thought that was the. I thought that was when they oh, yeah, when they were getting the, too. Yeah. 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 So um, needles are in the news, Cameron, and uh, there's no getting around it. They're always controversial, whether they include saline solution or peptides or you know some something else, but. Um, I'm proud to say I'm fully vaccinated as of last week, and I I, I will heartily recommend to all of our listeners um, that we get vaccinated to uh, pr- that you get vaccinated to protect yourself, and hopefully we can at the footy next year. Here, here, let's go to Boxing Day. You know, a bunch of beers with you know a hundred thousand you know screaming Australians and rip into the bombs. That would be sensational. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Boxing Day that the sp- Specific day is out um, because of family commitments, but I'm certainly interested in this year, and I'll I'll be happily you know, if, if if possible if we can all do the, enough of us can do the right thing I'll be happy turning up to the MCG for the Boxing Day Test match um, to uh, as uh, as the Premier has put it on previous occasions get on the beers <laughs> lovely. So grand final week started with the brown. That was a grand medal wrap there. It was a ground. It was a grand final fortnight this time with the buy in between the two weeks. But we had a Sunday Brownlow medal, which I was, which I can highly recommend. Now that we've had it two years, we were the earliest start. We had it. It was done and dusted by ten o'clock. For those of us who like to go to bed early, that was very good. And Gillen got through the votes quickly. Uh, save for the pauses before David Mundy polled. 20 votes to the 36-year-old. You heard it here first. 
with the awesome predictive power of the AFL player rating Brownlow, which had Ollie Wines finishing absolutely nowhere. I think he <laughs> polled in six games in the player <laughs> rating Brownlow. He polled, he polled in 16 games in the actual Brownlow. So, um, but we got David Mundy right for all those who had him in their multis to poll the most votes at Fremantle. Um, so tick there for the the timeliness, and I think I think they should stick with Sundays. I think it's I think it's good, and, and the able to start it earlier and finish it earlier is good. Um, Ollie Wines winning with the most votes ever, thirty six votes tying Dusty Martin's record in two thousand and seventeen, um, with um, four players polling thirty votes. It is just incredible how the best players. I mean, Ollie Wines polled in sixteen of twenty two games. It's just yeah. incredible. Ridiculous. There's, there's, um, about, there's about 10 players in the AFL, if you, if you believe the Brownlow. Mm, mm. Incredible. I, I, I tweeted at one stage that uh, at round after 14 games, Marcus Bontempelli had polled more votes than Robert Harvey did in, in 1997 when he won his first Brownlow, yeah. um, which by those standards of those time was a was a – was on the highest side of winning tallies, but that four players poll thirty. Um, lots of records falling in terms of uh, most votes polled by a duo on the same team, most votes polled by a trio in the same team. Um, it seems like the spread is getting worse. That the the same players seem to poll uh, are sort of realizing a higher percentage of their votes, but. That's what I actually wanted to talk about with the Brownlow. I wanted to talk about the common uh, criticism of the Brownlow at this time of year, which is it is a midfielder's medal, which it obviously is. Um, but just I, I want to put that claim into a bit of perspective. One, it's it's sort of always has been a midfielder's medal. You could win a Brownlow medal if you had an exceptional season at another position. Um in the 1980s, I think it's a pretty good example that you could certainly do it um, if you include 1979 in the 80s for the purposes of, of this argument. Um, Peter Moore won two playing in the ruck. Um, Brad Hardy won in a back pocket. Um, Ross Glending won one at centre-half back. Bernie Quinlan, Kelvin Templeton, Tony Lockett, they won playing sort of key forward. But you also had Dipper, Greg Williams, Jared Healy, Paul Couch, Brian Wilson, who were all midfielders. I sort of feel like it has always been a midfielder's medal to a certain extent, although that has become more concentrated lately. Adam Good's probably the last player not to win as a pure mid in 2003. Um, I think the fact that he has he won that Brownlow medal was a miracle because I think Nathan Buckley should have won by about eight votes that year. But um, the other thing is all the other major awards, the media awards, the coaches' awards, are all won by the midfielders as well. So aren't we all in agreement that the midfielders are the most important players? Well, the, yes, we are. I mean, the, the midfielders were the best players in the comp this year. Going back a couple of years, there was that um, the one out of the box where kind of separated themselves and, and uh, it was such a, you know, a beautiful return of, of the pure Ruckman. Um, and we hoped that one of them might, might steal a Brownlow. Um, they still play in the midfield. Mm. Um, it, but yeah, it's interesting, you know, going over some of what you said there. Um, if you 
you host the Brownlow Medal in Perth and some blokes from the pub to be the entertainment uh, and <laughs> sing a song prior to um, the, the evening kicking off, you can be done by 10 p.m. Um, yep. If you're not trying to sort of wedge in a stack of garbage entertainment, it still goes for too long. Um, someone someone said, let's face it, the Brownlow Medal could be an email. I had to tip my hat to that. I'd probably like a little bit more of an event than an email, but um, it, you know, shorter the better. Just rip through the votes. We do um, have more votes nowadays, though. I think when we remember when we were kids, and there's like 132 games in a season, or 154, and now there's 198. There just literally is more votes to read out. So that's going to take a little while longer. Yes, but we, you know, why pause after round six? I know they're, they're trying to add a bit of drama, but I, I don't need it personally. Like, let's get through it, and and. I don't. That feedback doesn't seem to get back about any award nights. As as someone who's just finished up being an actor, every every uh, that that I ever went to just went for hours and hours, and it's uh, it's full on. I don't know why that feedback doesn't make its way back. You know, um, uh, but yeah, no. That and I heard an interesting theory uh, posited by uh, David King actually on Waitley, and he was sort of because my 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 stance on the you know the, these particular players just voting every week and wine's winning with 36 you know i, I want a 36 vote season to be reserved for a dusty martin because i don't believe that ollie wines has just played a dusty season um no and you know it, it, it's tracking towards sam walsh polling 50 votes in a couple of years the way he voted this year was remarkable and to to get 30 at his age can sort of sense what's coming from from that point of view um yeah, it's um, <laughs> it, it's yeah. I, Ollie Wines didn't have a thirty-six vote year, but it was very interesting to hear David King sort of talk about the way that footy operates now, which is you 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 try and set your Dustin Martins, you you try and make your whole game plan work for a Dustin Martin, you make your whole game plan work for a Jake Stringer and a um. You know, probably less so on Ollie Wines, but but he's the guy at the coalface trying to make the game work for maybe a Robbie Gray or something like that. We are we're trying to separate our great players and and work really hard for overlap to to create space for these guys to be the kind of showpiece of our game, to be the Dustin Martins. That was the the evolution of Trent Cochin's game was to like almost sacrifice himself, like a, a truly great footballer who played like really great defensive mid football to allow Dustin Martin to start winning Brownlows. Um, football is kind of football strategy is kind of shaped that way. I know you didn't want to talk about it, but I just found mm. it interesting because it, you know, it, it, these days it's less about 22 on 22, the whole Richmond salary cap thing. And they probably borrowed a little bit from that saints model going, going back in the day where, you know, you had that incredible top five players and then the list fell away after that or fell away to role players after that. And that was the Richmond model. Um, Dustin Martin needs to shine in that side and your truly great players need to shine in your footy team and need to win Brownlow votes every week. So that's a lot of pressure. And mm. those Melbourne boys seem to be handling it really well. But, you know, it, there's the argument that football's going that way and we're deliberately shaping it that way where guys are having seasons and we're not going to see Liberatore uh, win a Brownlow with 18 votes or whatever it was. Um, 
you know, as glorious as those counts were and as wonderful as it was to see umpires make absolute howlers um, and, and award votes where there should be none. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Well, we had, we had a brief just back and forth on Twitter direct messages about the fact that Guy Richards polled a Brownlow vote in 2006. <laughs> For 48% I mean, gay time. Yeah, 48 percent. How? So, I don't he know how that very, happened. Like... <laughs> so he got the vote for the 52 percent of the time he wasn't on the ground. That makes, um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, it, it, it's something. Um, but, yeah, you just don't – I don't know. Sometimes they – it seems like there's a lot of it. seems like early in the, on the count, it seemed like Bontepelli was maybe suffering a little bit like in the first few rounds from, you know, Trelaw picked up some votes and they've got a very deep midfield, but they certainly weren't spreading the votes through the middle of the middle of it. It's not like Travis Boak was a, was in a situation where he was in a one-man midfield polling-wise. Sam Walsh obviously was, but because um, Travis Boak polled 20-something votes. So many times they polled in the same game. Um was sort of extraordinary. They won a lot of games. They won a lot of games against teams they should beat too, which probably um, makes it a little bit easier. So, um, I, I remember, I remember thinking that Bontempelli. I think we actually said it on the last podcast that Bontempelli could have it won, uh, you know, with eleven best on grounds, and and essentially at, he he got thirty three votes, which which should have been mm. unassailable. Um, mm. But yeah. they they just never missed wine. It's it's um that's the way it went and he was he was very no, no one's going to argue with him winning the Brownlow that he was favourite going in um but uh but yeah the idea that thirty three votes was getting mm. yeah so the idea that yeah uh, for me it's I don't have a problem with the idea of Ollie Wine's Brownlow medalist and it's great and Port Adelaide now got a Brownlow medalist so GWS the only team without one um but this idea that if we're going to compare seasons and use the Brownlow as a sort of yardstick because we don't really care about the totals of any other award, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not sitting here thinking, well, that, that wasn't as many awards. That wasn't as many votes as, you know, Luke Darcy got to win the 2002 age footballer of the year. When we when we look at who won this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all we, all we have is Brownlow votes to compare eras and not only, have you got a situation where we're going to be looking at 36 votes for Wines and 36 votes for Martin in 2017 and, you know, 20 votes for James Hurd in 1996 where, where, when he won with Michael Voss? And, you know, it, that's, that is the Hurd season, the 96 the season. Um, but also the other thing isn't putting things into historical – in historical context over the course of a career is you've got situations where I think Joel Selwood adjusted, that is, you know, halving the totals from those two years, 76 and 77, where both field umpires gave votes. So you get the double, mm. double totals. Joel Selwood is like now third all time in terms of career brand levels. Now he's played a ton of footy. He's played 330 games, which helps, but he's never, he's never been super close to winning a brand low. I think he no. has. I think he has twenty vote seasons, but you know, low twenties. And what we've just talked about why that doesn't cut it anymore. 
Um, you know, he's at somewhere like 210, 220 career Brownlow votes and might not have finished top three in a Brownlow ever. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of that. Whereas, you know, some other players who are, you know, some of the greatest Brownlow names ever have not polled, you know, that amount of votes. So it, it's, it's, it's very interesting in terms of just trying to put things into a historical context. And I think, I think that is an issue, um, a little bit more than I guess the, the, the midfielders medal, which I don't think is as big of an issue as some people put out there. there. And the other thing I would mention, you can't fix the Brownlow because it is what it is. If you really want to make it worthless from a historical context point of view, change the rules, change who awards them, change the voting method then we'll have absolutely no line of sight between those sort of things. It'll just be, it'll be like before, you know, like baseball before the dead ball era and after the dead ball. Um, so don't take it away from the umpires, leave it in it, leave it in its flawedness. And maybe we have to create other, we have a goal kicking award, which is completely objective, which is the amount of goals you kick in a season. Um, we probably need something better for maybe positions on the other end, but also, we do have the All-Australian team. So, you know, if you're the best key defender in a year, you probably end up in the All-Australian team. So, as... Anyway. And these things shift, you know. I don't think greatness is ever... You know, we, we, we talk a fair bit about cricket, if, if people will let us. And, <laughs> um, you know, like, they'll, they will end up uh, cricketers with better records than um, Michael Bevan, better records than Dean Jones. and. Um, you know, you you always um, stump up for Jeff Marsh in one day cricket, but it's like the the game has completely evolved. Mm. Uh, roles within that team have completely evolved, but Dean Jones and Michael Bevan are still all time great one day players. They'll yeah. never be and, taken away. And there are numbers, and then there are other impacts. And looking at it, and you know, as you said, games evolve, games change. But we've got an interesting one that's just popped into my head in terms of footy, and that is now that Eddie Betts is retired, who's the greatest small forward of all time? Mm. And, you know, statistically on the numbers, um, someone like Stephen Milne is, is, is sort of superior to Eddie Betts. But, and, and obviously I've lived, through, you know, I've lived through both. And, you know, I've watched a lot of Stephen Milne. He attended a lot of games in person. Um, you know, Betts has probably had more of a, a significant impact um, on the game and everything surrounding it. But I'm, th- the reason I bring this up is not not necessarily to compare Milne and Betts because they're two of the great small forwards of all time. It's just there are players who, if you were picking an all-time 22, who you would have in the foot pocket ahead of both of them, but they were both. But those guys were better footballers. So they ended up playing a lot of their career in other positions. Um, Lee Matthews, Kevin Bartlett, Peter Dacos, just to reel three off the top top of my tongue. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, I had this. You know, they played their whole career as small forwards. Yeah. So yeah. the reason why Eddie Betts and Stephen Milne, two in particular, were able to play an entire career as goal kicking small forwards is because they weren't good enough to play in the midfield, which is another example of you know midfielders of you know coaches and you know clubs in the way that they pick teams. They put their best players in the middle. So they're also genuinely small, though. You know, like both mm. those both those guys, football um, 
King brought up another point this morning, which is that there, there's only been one Norm Smith medalist above 189 centimetres in 30 years or something like that, or maybe two, and, and Scott Penderbury's one of them. So, you know, midfielders win that award too, or small players win that award and key forwards, you know, mm. disappear. But, you know, the idea that, that, you know, like Eddie Betts is an absolute freak show. I reckon you could just about play him anywhere, but positionally, um, physically, he's going to be up against it if, you know, it's him up against Pendlebury at the centre bounce. Mm. The, the ability to read off the tap and, you know, like his, his greatness, like was most able to influence games from a forward pocket. And it, like, I, I had this chat and granted it was with an Adelaide supporter the other day, but it's tough to go past Eddie for, for um, particularly for a highlights with anyone who um, has a spare um, 10 minutes and fancies watching just some great, great watch Eddie Betts highlights. Do that, but listen to this podcast first, then watch the Eddie Betts. Listen, go through this on the whole podcast first, then watch Eddie Betts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I don't know why I'm suggesting that someone with time on their hands should go and watch that. If you're listening to this, you got too much time. <laughs> that goes without saying, um, <laughs> as does everything else on the podcast. Um, let's t- Well, I mean, Eddie Betts is good news. Uh, it's not good news that he's retired, but all the best to Eddie in, in his uh, convalescence post-football and all the important work. Oh, obviously, he's got lots more important work to do, so more strength to his arm. But um, keeping keeping things on good news, um, Geelong, uh, we've, <laughs> we've been on this podcast um, barracking, cheering, basically, for the eventual demise of the Geelong Football Club. And, you know, I think it, it's interesting, and we'll, we'll talk about both of, the te- both of the vanquished teams in the preliminary finals. I don't know if the Cats were that bad. Last Friday night, they just got run off the track. That was, they were just, they weren't in the same league as Melbourne in that game. And they had, you know, half their team was over 30. And a lot of those players who are 29 and over who are in their team are contracted for next season. There's a lot, a lot of moving on. This is who they have. Um, you could see. Dangerfield trying everything he could to get things going, and it just, it just, he just couldn't make it happen. And I don't know what the alternative is for Geelong, but to, you know, cross their fingers and hope that somehow they get lucky and it works next season. But, geez, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I know it's early on to do 2022 predictions, but I'm leaning towards not having them in my eight. Yeah. You know, that they, they just started to tip, like towards the end of the, the year, they they met a couple of reasonable sides down at Virginia Park, and they lost those games. They were tight games, but they lost them. Hmm. Um, you know, we can say they weren't they weren't uh, you know by by Melbourne a week and a bit ago, but they're modelling everything. They were they were chips in, as we spoke about. They hmm. it had to be this year, hmm. um, based on on all their recruiting. Um, it, it had to work, and and it, it it didn't just fail. It failed spectacularly. I don't think they were. I don't think they came into the year thinking it'll be Melbourne that flogs us on preliminary final day, um, or that they they should be particularly worried about Melbourne. But 
um, they loaded up. Interesting thing is like, and and I'll, firstly, like I'm not a huge fan of Geelong, and I do think they they you know have a bit going for them in the home and away season most years um, playing down there. Um, you know, I was I was only too happy to sort of say I think I called it pretty early actually last year that when they shortened the quarters, um, and when everything went haywire and suddenly we were traveling every week and playing footy in hubs and all this kind of stuff. You know, I, I just had this feeling um, that even though Geelong had been flogged um, in round one and prior to, you know, the big break, um, that that potentially they were going to be the team that last year aided the most and their experience would come to the fore and shorter quarters might suit them. Um they they might not get run off their legs as often as it might appear they would on paper, and maybe it suits you know someone like a Selwood and um, and guys like that. But um, and you know, and I also predicted they'd win the grand final in our pre grand final podcast this time last year. Um, mm. I was wrong, but I, I sort of stand up and say like in the midst of last year, I thought they were playing the best football that that, that was happening in the competition, but. In our pre-finals pod, I noted that I didn't think they'd played that level of football this year. I thought Melbourne were by far and away the best team, and the the, the interesting thing is that is was that Geelong's list management strategy was was entirely all about this year, it seemed, and that and the small moves that are already being mooted, you know, um, they've signed the boy Narkel on a one-year deal, which is good, but Jordan Clark likely leaving. Nathan Kruger has, I believe, requested a, a trade to Collingwood. Um, the, the the Kruger one just makes me shake my head. But this you is know, what I'm talking about, you know, because yeah, Harry these... Taylor's retired last season. Lockie Henderson, mm. you know, as good as Henderson was this season for the bulk of the season, surely not going around again. Um, you know, precisely. You, yeah, you just sort of. Kruger's. This is not. This is not a situation where you're going to be throwing him in at 19 years old, a la Zach Dawson in 2006. He's been in the system in the weights room for three or four years. You've got to give the bloke a game and see if he could hang with some of the key forwards in the competition. He's they exact, might be really exactly what Collingwood needs, and they, and they might be really comfortable letting him go. They may have decided he's just not. He hasn't got what it takes at the level. They might feel. Perfectly fine with that, but it's it's the to me it's the exact opposite decision from you know what you might do if you um, if you took stock uh, at Geelong and didn't just double down on this strategy again. Where here's the worrying thing. Yeah, go ahead. As far as I'm concerned, from Geelong, from probably how they finished the season, they lost. They played. They played their last three games down at the Cattery, and they lost two of them, and beat St Kilda in the middle of the game, which was a win that was full of merit considering the, you know, what, what happened inside the game. Um, and they lost, and then they lost two, two of the three finals. They lost four of their last six games. Um, but in all those losses and the game against St. Kilda, they gave up significant bunches of unanswered goals, like runs of goals. They were five goals down against St. Kilda in round 22. And that is, that's a, that's a red flag. If you cannot stop a run at three goals in a row consistently, if you keep giving up fives and six and sevens or, you know, 102 like they did against Melbourne, um, then you have you have an issue. Mm. Um, because as a good team, you just have to be able to hit the 
hit the panic button at some stage in a good way and say, no, 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 we're just getting five minutes of hold serve um, so we can normalise the score a bit and then and, and get a foothold in the game. If you're conceding, consistently conceding those those sort of runs of five, six, seven goals in a row, you have you have problems. Whether it's mental or it's physical, it's something. And they'll point to they'll point to Tom Stewart um, being an absolute key in that back line. And you know, fair cop, the guys are great. Again, they loaded up. It's and you spoke about it. You know, you know, through at in our trade week pod that they had they'd gone all in, and and you know it was it was a really good list on paper, but it was you know it was an old list too, so it had to work. And they'll they'll just be fascinating to watch now. I mean, you know, famously, I think you, you know you, you it's never as bad as it appears to be. Quite bad. Mm. And the Jeremy Cameron trade might be one of the all time great. Bad for the player, bad for the club that traded for him. Traits of all mm. time, considering the three first round draft picks that Geelong gave up that could, you know, a team with Geelong's record of development, which is not as good in the last couple of years because they just simply haven't had the players to develop. They've gone, mm. they've topped up, but certainly through the 2000s and through the first half of the 2010s. They've developed these these homegrown players who've become really good footballers. Um, you would have backed them in to hit on absolutely two of them, and you know that's a pretty that's a pretty decent start. And then you get games that you know Clark and Narkle and you know the, the the other the other one that hurt them during the fall. They had two probably injuries that probably hurt them going into the falls. That was Stewart and Parfit in. Yeah, I think he got hurt in the first final. So, but you know, at some stage they had to, they've had, they, you know, it, it, may, it should have probably been two years ago where it was just like we need to find somewhere else on the field to play Selwood, um, and we probably need to, you know, it, it it's hard to get away from a key a key position player who is perform who's doing a job. So, but you know. And as well as he, as good as he had a season he had, maybe a season to Kruger would have been better for them. But you know, having got Cameron, they had you know they went in with Henderson. You're just gonna be like, okay, we've just pushed all our chips in the middle of the table. It didn't work. I can't. One thing is one thing is for sure. I, there's no circumstance where I can see it being a soft landing from here. So let me ask you this, punter: If you're Chris Scott right now, how do you play it? Do you stick it out at Geelong and do you do you ride this crash? Or do you like jump ship and who's going to take that job? I'll, I'll say this: Chris Scott played in two premierships under Lee Matthews. I don't think either of the Scots played no three. Um, Lee Matthews left Brisbane when they were back on when when the bottom when they were out of the bottom. They had bottomed out and they were on the way up again. And that's where Matthews said he said I wasn't going to leave them while they were bottoming out. Um, once we righted the ship and we were building up again, then I would step away. So it wouldn't surprise me if Scott feels that way. Because if they're going to bottom out, I'll stick through the bottom out. And and I think it's might have been the way Clarkson thought it was going to go at Hawthorne until it was made clear that Hawthorne had other plans that may or may not have been uh, spurred on by the free market. 
Um, yeah, and Chris but, Scott's not Lee Matthews either. You know, like how long how long will he be protected um, as a ten year one flag coach, like who has had an extraordinary run, no question. Mm. But how long will he be protected by a really footy mad city? Um, if it's as bad as we think it's going to be, you know, do you, does he get to make that decision that, you know, it, can he steer the ship through this mess and back out again five years from now? Or does he lose his job somewhere along the line while, you know, someone like a Matthew Scarlett's probably breathing down his neck? I've heard discussion. I've heard reports that Scarlett had a falling out with Scott after that. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Corey Enright's already left the club, mm-hmm. so there's going to be there's going to be some fallout inside the footy department. Clearly, there's not a lot else they can do because they're sort of locked in with who they have. Uh, um, five years is an eternity. It's a long time. It is. It's a long time. So. We'll we'll wait and see, but I'm not buying Geelong stock at the moment. I'm selling, and I'm selling hard. Yeah, yeah. The other team, the other team that lost the preliminary final was Port Adelaide. I don't know what's worrying with being in Geelong's situation, where I just think the the proof was that they there was no circumstance under whether they when under which they would win that match. Um, I can't believe considering what happened last year where Port Adelaide played one of the great prelims against Richmond and all sorts of circumstances conspired to um, to do them in, you know, the weather and they're playing against Richmond and, and everything like that. And it just, it just occurred to me what the comparison is. But they just, they, they did not show up. At all in that final. That final was over in 20 minutes, and you sort of couldn't believe it happening as as you were watching. And I think if you were Port Adelaide supporter, you would be like, "I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe we can't." We, yeah, they're 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 not. They haven't come to play. The comparison is Collingwood between 2000 and 2003, because Port Adelaide has sort of turned. There was an article I think that might have run on the AFL website or or the Herald Sun or something like that. Whereas here's the five guys like. Brad Ebert and Hamish Hartlett, the old stages, the the foot soldiers, the, the Carl Steinfurts and the Rupert Bathyrses of 2002, yeah. if you will. And they had replaced them with these younger players. They had all the motivation, considering what happened last year, to try, oh, now we've got to go one better. They had the form at the at the right end of the season. But like, in, like calling in 2003, where they replaced those with younger, more talented players, but they just did not perform on the biggest stage. I don't know what's easy to deal with because obviously Geelong have a long road ahead, but it's, and, and, it, and it will be difficult, but it is straightforward. Um, what do you do about players who are in the prime of their careers, undoubtedly very talented and might be, you know, problematically unreliable now and have been proven so in these big games? Well, uh, Port, I just I, I I don't I don't think you'd be sleeping well if you were Port Adelaide supporter at the moment on the evidence of what happened a week and a half ago. You'd be happy that you've got a brand new medalist, but that that's um that's the silver lining on a cloud, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, leading into this year, you modelled Port grand finalist as a premiership winner, and there was every reason to go that way, and a lot of experts went that way, and well, I did. Uh, 
Well, that's what I mean. And and as we as it stood, um, you know, going into prelim final weekend, you were looking like a genius. They um, mm. they had found a way, and and there was this sly way that Ken Hinckley was talking about it, which was, you know, like you, you know, you haven't, Mister Hinckley, Mister Hinckley, you haven't beaten many, um, you know, top eight sides. And he was like, well, let's wait till the whips are cracking. And when um, when they came out and won their qualifying final, and he just had that little smirk on his face, I was like, "Oh, hang on a minute!" So they rolled the dogs coming into the finals, and then they rolled Geelong, and feels pretty good, pretty good. And then and then they had that nice half of the draw where the dogs had travelled and quarantined, and you know everything stacked against them, which is almost the perfect time to bet on a side, by the way. Um, but everything stacked against them, and and you're nice and rested, and and you know, and and all the messaging, everything coming out of Port Adelaide was was just bang on. And they, as you say, they didn't show up. Um, my thought coming into this year was, you know, was that year one out of the box for us? You know, overall felt are uh, fluky that that don't give a consistent effort. And for most of the year, I felt vindicated because they didn't show up. You know, like I think, and where they've dropped a couple of games against lower sides, but that when it when the whips have been cracking, when it's really meant something, Melbourne have played their best footy. To me, that's the premiership side. That's that's what it looks like, and you can pick it out pretty early. Big clashes, and they get it done. And Port Adelaide weren't doing that, so I felt vindicated in that. But they got on this nice run leading into the finals, and I nearly bought the messaging and thought, you know, they've they've just They've played us a little bit. They've timed their run, and now they're going really beautifully. Um, but to my worry was that there's a the true class on that list is either old or young, um, and Ollie Wines is probably an exception to that. Um, but I felt like Kirk and Gray as truly great players, and maybe you've got Zach Butters and Connor Rosie and these guys who are the next generation of really great, really, really great players. Yeah, but they're the ones I'd be worried about. They'd be the ones I'd be worried about. I think, you know, Wines did what he could. And as you say, Bokes, Boke played in the 2007 grand final. So he's, he's Selwood's vintage. They are the same age. Um, mm. and, and those guys, there's a handful of them left in the league. Um, but, geez, um, the, 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 the three players that they brought in a couple of years ago, who took the league by sort of by storm in 2019, you know, hard questions um, for those guys based on that performance. I did, you know, Rosie, Butters, and Dersman, none of them were a pass mark <laughs> in that no, game. No, definitely not. Definitely at not. all. And, and, and the the thing is that that Rosie may al- always be, and I, I hope I'm wrong, but he might always be that guy that. Um, can impact a game, but can also drift out of a game. Butters is a guy willing to take to the bank. I think he's 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 had a really uh, from an injury perspective, but mm. he was the one that kind of I, I think was the least heralded as the as they dropped into the league. Everyone thought Carlton's made the wrong pick. Rosie's the guy fueled by Kane Corns's hyperbole, and then. Um, Dersma with his, you know, arrow celebration was kind of 
you know, he was a, a huge part of it. And then Butters was kind of unassuming. But there were moments in, in that finals run last year where I thought, oh, hang on a minute, he's made of the right stuff and he, he hasn't got his body right. But, you know, the big criticism of Port is that it falls away really quickly and you look at their Brownlow medal votes. So after Wines and Boak, it's it's pretty tragic after that and, and falls away down mm. to Carl Amon was the only other guy who kind of uh, pinched a vote here or there. Um, Butters is, I think, the guy that you can throw into that first bounce next year. As long as he has a good preseason, he's a guy that they can depend on. But they, I think they need to get a couple of other guys that they can depend on pretty quickly. Um, there are gaps in that list. Um, and I'm not sure, like, you know, there's there's a murmuring that Charlie Dixon wants to go back to the Gold Coast. There's a murmuring that Jeremy Finlayson might be someone that they're looking at. They're shopping uh, Peter Laddams around, uh, which is interesting. Which is insanity. It is insanity, but they really rate their boy uh, Hayes. Um, at a, a backup rug, ruck cog. You know, there's a lot of teams that are dealing with this, that ruckmen who can play one's footy um, don't really want to play two's and And there's a couple of clubs that are really nicely stocked. Um, and so they've they've said, you know, that Laddam's going to have a, have a look around. I don't think their list is going to look the same. And it's interesting because I think coming into this year, most people thought Port could have a real tilt. Um, yeah, I... I wasn't convinced, uh, you know, and obviously I'm still not. But I also don't think, again, I don't think it's as bad. I don't think it's as bad as Geelong. I think they can make a couple of moves and potentially get those right, and um, you know, and and be there and thereabouts. I'd make one last point about those three players, and that is, I, Port Adelaide need one of them to become a set of bounce player. You know, one of them has to be at the coalface. They can't because they got they got other, you know, like Amon is another is an example, and he's that's fine. But you, you know, they've got too much of the 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 sort of outside peripheral type icing on the cake. One of them, and it's probably his butters. One of them's got to become sort of more meat and potatoes. Um, he's the guy. He's because, the guy, and he's the you know, the, the the end will come for Boke quickly. Um. Yeah, he's been a tremendous player. Um, who's just might, you know might just had his best season. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's sort of insane considering what's happening to his contemporaries. Um, but they do need someone to come at the co- coalface. The other point I'd make is that'd be an that'd be an interesting matchup forward line if you had three if you had a, a forward line that was sort of Marshall, Georgiatis, Finlayson. That's that's guys who can take a grab. But none of them necessarily a perfect matchup for your gorilla fullback. So might be where the might be where footy's heading. Um, but you know, it, it would be it would be interesting. But yeah, the other thing is, Kane Corn's hyperbole is like ensuing kickoff. It's one of those combinations of words where you don't say one thing without the other thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And other. Um, oh, other combinations of words we can't say at a family type slot. So um. <laughs> loud and wrong. I sort of love it because he, he's. I think he's willing to be wrong and to sort of face up to it when he is. Um, but calling Rosie over Walsh um, that early. Wow! 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 Yeah, that's. Um, well, yeah, that's not. That that that's had better weeks. Um, 
But as you said, we're all looking forward to Sam Walsh's 50 plate. Brownlow night in a few years. Um, speaking of performances out of the box, Cameron, I have one question about Max Gorm, and that is this. Is that the best quarter a Ruckman's ever played? Well, that, I mean, <laughs> show me a better. Absolutely unbelievable. And, and like, really had played a terrific game up until that point, and then basically from that point onward, just went and sat on the pine for, and was still the number one ranked player on the, on the ground. He was, he was marvelous. And, um, and, and, you know, he's played this like really lovely, humble role. He's probably the most liked player in football, uh, or he's right up there. You know, he, he, he's spoken so beautifully. He's bigged up his teammates. He's been this great captain, um, without the guy this year. Um, I think, although, you know, there's been moments and obviously the moment to send them top of the ladder after that incredible comeback against Geelong um, stands out. But, you know, I think it's a feature as good as that little um, three-headed monster in the guts has been. I didn't think any of them were going to win the brown though because they don't, they're not trying to, you know, that, I don't think any of them are trying to be Dusty Martin. They're all sacrificing each other's games for each other. There's this real lovely team um, vibe to Melbourne at the moment, which is really pure. They've, they've landed on something really, like, really fantastic, I think. Um, you know, and they'll be hoping it lasts. But Max just, <laughs> he separated that game. He was like, we're going to the grand final and I'm doing it right now. And mm. it's scary because... You know, he's he's the guy that on paper that the dogs have no matchup for really. And if if he if he chooses, it seems like he can separate the grand final as well. It was funny. I was watching. I was watching the first quarter. The thing that I noticed about Maxwell in the first quarter was how little he was playing in the ruck. They they ran Jackson in the ruck a lot in yeah. the first quarter, and Gorm was playing forward. And I was trying to get a matchup. Or you know, and, and Geelong are a team that. They like to roll the dice with Henry on a tool, and Henry's what one eight one ninety something like that. So every now and then you can get. I mean, Max is really tall, so not just tall by you or I standards. He's six eight or something, isn't he? He's Paul Salmon, Justin Madden size. Um, and then obviously there was that moment in the second quarter where he, the kick was touched and he's just like, oh, I have to play on. And he was the only person on the ground who had realised it was touched, other than the <laughs> bloke who touched it and the umpire. Um, I'm not sure the bloke who touched it knew it was touched. Um, and okay, you messaged me at that stage and said, you know, basically that that's over if they're kicking them. And, but the, the goal on the run in the third quarter was even better than that. And then the snap. The one I mean, he's kick, he's never kicked three goals in a game and he kicked four and a quarter. I mean... He kicked the three best goals of the night, and he just yeah. yeah he was taking the piss yeah, and that that's you know this is the biggest compliment I can pay Gorn specifically about the game he just played is Petrarca's game might have it's the second best second best on ground I think I've ever seen in a final mm. Behind Acker's five goals in 03. And I'm sorry, that's, that, <laughs> I should have given you a trigger warning, but Acker was incredible today and would have won every Norm Smith before then and after, I think. But Simon Black had a gajillion touches. Um, Petrarca was 
just incredible. I, I they they were I mean, that pains me um, to say that because of because we were the only team who could have had him other than Melbourne was us. Um, the other the other thing I'd say is if I was starting a midfield and picking a midfield and I could pick any players under the, to pick you know your, your starting centre square, there's a chance that three of them would be Melbourne players. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yep. Oh, no, the fourth so, is yeah, probably is. Um, well, I've got enough of them. So we, we've gone through 50 minutes. We've talked about we we talked about Bont briefly, but we've barely talked about the Bulldogs. So let's talk. Let's get let's get on to the grand final. Grand final is Saturday night. It's in Perth. Cameron McDonald make the case for the Bulldogs this ah. Well, the case for the Bulldogs is that. They've done it before. That they, you know, they they had no right to win any week except the first week, really, um, based on their preparation and um, quarantining and no no right to try all this kind of stuff. Bontempelli getting injured, you know, and and looking for all money like he couldn't play the following week. Um, you know, they they had no right to do it. They're probably even less right to do it. Sixteen, where that you know each week they started outsiders because they went to Perth and then they came up against a team going for a four peat. Um, then they played the the white hot GWS at home, you know, and they they weren't the favourites going into the grand final either. But there was just something happening. There was magic happening. Um, they played this incredible. Um. September and the form line here is is really good. If the other if the team in the other half of the draw isn't Melbourne, you're probably going, yeah, like they've they've just created the magic again after a little dip towards the end of the year. Um, you know, because stop the year when these two teams last played each other, and we probably thought a lot of people probably thought they'd seen enough from the Bulldogs to have them as premiership favourites, and they probably were in the markets after that game. It had been Melbourne and the Doggies all year. Um, and as it turned out, you know, um, the Doggies fell away after that. <laughs> you know, the, the conspiracy theorist in me wonders whether Bevo kind of looked at um, uh, this particular year, this, this particular finals draw, and went, it's not going to be a good thing to finish in the top four. Um you know, it's always been a great, you know, you and I have spoken about this this kind of weird era of the pre-finals buy and what that's done to the side that uh, finishes top four and wins in the first week, um, you know, and, and doesn't play footy all that often. Melbourne suddenly find themselves in that position. And because it's Melbourne, you know, you, you wonder whether there's any demons, <laughs> you know, in inverted commas there. Um, and, you know, just some some worry that starts to creep into that footy club. Um, the dogs don't have that. They won a grand final going back a few years. They've made some magic here. They've, they've played footy most weeks and now they're a little bit banged up and they get a week to chill out. It's it. They've timed it very well. I just think they're the second best team in it. So I can, I can make a case and, and, you know, through the, um, through their preliminary final, I was like, gee whiz, have they just timed this really beautifully? And and you were quick to sort of talk me down and kind of say, look, 
Melbourne were remarkable last night. Gorn is still what's going to separate this game. But, you know, I had to think of during that game, I wondered whether Bevo had just timed it really beautifully. And I do think he's a bit of a master coach. So anything's possible. Um, but the longer this this uh, two weeks has gone on, um, the more I think, um, the more I think it's going to be it's going to be Melbourne. I'm 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 going to attempt to make the case. The first point I'd make is they they did five years ago. Then this is a better team. Top to bottom, this is a better team. There, there's there's probably a two. Yeah, this 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 seems like a deeper team. It's certainly a deeper midfield. Um. They seem to have two genuine forwards. It'll be interesting to see what they do with Shacky. That will be an interesting tactical um, exercise because I feel like he's probably wanting he probably he'll probably want to get to Lever. Uh, um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, Bevo's just run this. I think they are they are the nobody believes in this Bulldogs. Um, and and again, they will be underdogs this week. Um, everyone was, and I I picked Essendon, so <laughs> um, yeah, I I shouldn't do that. Um, I certainly picked Brisbane, and I thought they would win comfortably. I thought the I thought I thought that was the scare. The Bulldogs were fortunate um, to win that game in a lot of respects. I thought um, they weren't fortunate to beat. Port Adelaide, they they destroyed them. Um, but I, I, I thought the Bull, I thought Port Adelaide were going to win that game rather comfortably as well. So I'm reluctant to write off the Bulldogs. They're a, they're, they're a team of momentum in the, and they've done this the hard way before in the four finals. But I think, you know I, I, I'm the same as you. I think I think. You, from from go to woe, Melbourne have been the best team all year. Bulldogs might have been the second best second best team all year, except for a three week patch in August. Um, you know the Bulldogs missed top four by a goal and two behinds, so it's it's very close. It's it's been very close, and it was probably in the end a five team season. Um, it's hard. It's just. I don't think you can tip against Melbourne if you think if you think give any consideration to Melbourne and how they've played this year and you know exposed form. It's all it's all other stuff that has nothing to do with how Melbourne have played in twenty twenty one. That's right. And we called that um in our mid season podcast. We we yeah, said Melbourne right. are playing the best footy and if if they weren't Melbourne, they would be premiership favourites. And I think you could still get about eight dollars mm. for them at that stage. So mm. they've been remarkable, and we just keep thinking they might stuff it up. Um, everything you said prior to the other thing I'll say about the dogs is we might get sick of them winning flags if um, if all of these kitten for free um, hit their straps at once. And you know, Norton aside, I'm talking again, and Sam Darcy who. Um, seems destined to be a top three pick in this year's draft and will will join the Bulldogs. So they're, they're about to go into a grand final without Sam Darcy and without Jamara Hagen and without Josh Bruce. Mm. Um, so the, the good years are ahead of the dogs. One of, their, one of the players they've got currently playing on a half-forward flank 
looks every bit a gun midfielder. Josh Dunkley's not playing his best football. You could argue Adam Trelaw's not playing his best football. That's a starting midfield at a lot of other clubs. Mm. And Bailey Smith is a better midfield, you know, and wipes every midfielder from the majority of teams in the AFL. And that arguably none of them will start in the center square on the weekend. So th- this midfield depth has become a-, a position of huge strength, but no Josh Bruce in that forward line. Um, you know, as, as, as good a player as he is, you know, he's not a brilliant player. And I think, you know, he'll be usurped eventually by one of those players we're talking about too much is left to uh, Aaron Norton. And as you know, as good a junior as Josh Shackey was, I don't think anyone's depending on him to to come in and play a significant goal kicking role in a grand final. Most mm. of us are thinking that he's coming in to kind of lock down on Jake Lieber. So that's quite negative. Already something that they're trying to do to quell a great strength of Melbourne's in their back line. Um, you know, it's just hard to imagine where the dogs get all their goals from. A lot of them have to come from the midfield. I don't think Bailey Smith's going to, you know, waltz around and kick four again, as hard a worker as he is. You know, Melbourne have some some really great hard-running wingmen who who work pretty well defensively and um, are a position of strength for Melbourne. So I think if you if you go for, for a Lear, I think Melbourne gets you on the ground anyway. Um, I think they're... They're just in that beautiful sweet spot as a footy club. And um, the more I think about it, it's going to clear out and be a four-goal-plus four win to Melbourne. Um, I hope it's one of the great grand finals. And I love that it's these two teams because um, they're very well-liked. Uh, well, I won't say Melbourne's very well-liked, but I think people can get on board with a, a drought-breaking um, flag attempt. So we'll allow Melbourne one flag, and we'll allow, we'll certainly allow Max Gorn and Neil Danaher a flag. Um, there's there's a lot of love in the community for for guys like that. So yeah, that's the way I see it going. Um, I hope I'm wrong, um, but yeah, I think it's four goals plus the D's. I mean, I think you're right, and in truth, the only thing stopping me is you know I've had the same thought the last two games about the Bulldogs, and it hasn't eventuated. They've They've um, proven me wrong, but uh, yeah, the D's. I'm not sure necessarily if if there's an issue. Yeah, the Bulldogs might be able to get some goals from their small forwards, um, and their midfielders playing down there. Um, I can't see Norton or Shacky or whoever's or English be spends any time down there getting a bag, Um, and and Melbourne. Melbourne have you know have a, have a very good other end of their spine in the forward line, which sort of straightens them up. And and you know if history has taught us anything, it's that Kasia Pickett is the sort of person, sort of player who wins Norm Smith medals. Um, yeah, yeah, we've seen it before from you know goal kicking, goal kick, small goal kickers, whether they be you know Shannon Grant or uh, Sirioli, and and this Paul Chapman, surely. Some I'm forgetting. Sure, some I'd like to forget. Yeah, um, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is one where I think it might. It's just you, I'm feeling a, a sort of compulsion not to overthink things. 
that is Melbourne are the best team. Um, and they've got the best players, and one of those guys in the guts is going to have 32-3. and three. And that'll be that. And, you know, if it is Melbourne, um, without a scary of churlishness, I hope that it's, you know... I mean, the great thing about last week against Geelong for the Melbourne supporters and for the Bulldog supporters as well, who've never done anything um, easily as supporters, um, is that they would have been able to enjoy it. So, you know, I think there'll be some benefit for the support, whoever wins the supporting group, that if it isn't a close game, but if it is Melbourne, I think it will be Melbourne if you say, if you say like it. But, you know, we don't five goal grand finals that the one that Bulldogs won ended up being four goals but that was sort of like in the balance with seven minutes to go yeah um, they tend to more be six or seven goals if they if they sort of the, the big gap in the game is put on like the first five minutes of the last quarter and I think I think to be fair it might be one of those um, and and it'll be nothing but deserved so and as I said in the mid-season part of I've already gone through the five stages of grief you know, come Saturday night, the longest active premiership chat will belong to the St Kilda Football Club, and we'll be we'll be back where we where we've been for most of our history. So, um, the scary thing is the next longest drought from a Melbourne club belongs to Carlton. You know, I was in high school when they won that premiership. So, ah uh, well. <laughs> anyway, come on, you've got to be more positive than that. Any, if, if it should show you anyway, that the droughts all end, they all end. They all end sometime. Um, so hopefully everyone enjoys the grand final on Saturday. It's on Saturday night. It's in Perth. Um, you know, fingers crossed there isn't a local, like locally acquired case in Western Australia in the next 96 hours that means that suddenly everyone's hopping <laughs> on a plane to, to Adelaide or Alice Springs or somewhere. Just so can we play it in front of 10? Can we, where can we get a crowd to play it? So fingers crossed everything goes smoothly for a wonderful event. And... I've, and hopefully it'll be wonderful. Cameron, um, we'll catch up on footy next, I think, with our annual Trade Week Instant Reacts podcast. And at some stage between that and NBA previews, we're going to have to fit in a cricket pod. I haven't forgotten. I'm sorry for all those people who are desperately waiting for me and Cameron to talk about cricket. We're desperately waiting too. There's a T20 World Cup coming up soon and, and, a, and, a, and an Ashes series, God willing. So, but uh, thanks for joining me today, Cameron. Ah, it's been a pleasure. No worries. And I'll catch all of you next time on the podcast. It should go without saying. Cheers.